Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of the podcast, we're talking about your job. Today, it would be pretty high status to have a job and actually be able to control your time and say, you know what, it's five o'clock, I'm going home and I'm unplugging. That, I think, would be great if that became high status. You know, the idea that you actually control your time, your employer does not control your time. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. This is the program where we provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and life. And boy, where does your money and life intersect most dramatically? In your job. And we have a great guest, Ellen Rupel Shell. She is a professor at Boston University. She's a correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly, and she is the author of a new book called The Job. What's really interesting about this book is that Ellen goes deep into the underbelly of the labor market and trends that are going to impact us, what makes us happy, how we can navigate it. I hope you enjoy it. I think she's fantastic. Uh, the interview is great. And if you have a financial question that you want us to answer, maybe it's about your job or your career, something else, just send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Okay, here's our interview with Ellen. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Ellen Ripple Shell is the author of The Job. So, Ellen, we start the program with uh, an important question. Every guest comes in and we we ask, what is the best financial or career decision that you've ever made? So I'm going to make it a career decision for you since you're writing about the job. What's the best career decision you've ever made? Wow. Uh, Gee, career. I I, I don't really think of myself as having a career. Um, You know, I'm a writer. And so writers are, 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 are foolish (laughs) <laughs> they're they're just foolish. So pursue um, your folly. I, exactly. I pursued my folly. I kind of failed uh, and failed and failed. And, you know, what I've learned from that is that you can survive all these failures. And I don't want to see be, say be, be victorious, but at least emerge, you know, scarred, but still alive. And making a few shekels. A, a, one or two. What drew you to this topic? Oh, wow. Um I think the glib answer would be masochism. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, Work is uh, a topic about which everyone has an opinion, and unfortunately, everyone has their own facts. So uh, I actually resisted doing it uh, for for a good long time because I knew uh, I was going to be jumping into a, a morass, right? Just a huge, huge sweeping topic. At a certain point, I just reached a, I reached a point where I felt like I couldn't avoid it because... Everybody was talking about work. It seemed that everybody was worried about work in some way, and very few people were actually doing uh, much about work or actually really uh, committing much thought to it. You know, there were a lot of of canards out there. A lot of um, uh, there was a lot of common wisdom that people were glomming onto. And um, as a journalist uh, with a background in science, in particular, I just found that very unsatisfying, and I really felt I needed to kind of get to the bottom of it. When you started the project, what was your own view of your work and your job? 
Well, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I'm a college professor and a writer, right? So I'm one of those odd ducks um, who actually does have a lot of control over her time and her job. Not entirely, uh, of course, and of course that's changing. Even in academia, you know, that's changing very quickly. Um, I'm kind of old school, and so I, I've had those privileges. But many, many people I know, I'm from Boston, um, including extremely well-educated people, you know, uh, people who went to those institutions what we've all heard of, uh, were really being surprised that despite um, their their high level education, um, their high skill level, they were having difficulty, and a lot of them were very afraid for their children. And mm-hmm. one thing, when I was testing the waters, thinking about doing this book, um, I'm a correspondent also, a long time for this magazine called The Atlantic. So I wrote a little essay for The Atlantic about work and its meaning, just to test the waters to see what if they get responded, you know, people would respond. And I got this tsunami of responses, this flood of responses, which kind of didn't surprise me because I knew everybody was talking about work and worried about work. And But what did surprise me was how many uh, people just starting out in the workforce were were writing to, to me and talking to me. Many of them had done everything right. Um, they were, you know, young and they're in their mid-20s. Um, they had gone to college. Some had gone to grad school. Um, they had done all the right things. And they were writing me because even though they were what we would think of as successful, and I'm sure their parents considered successful, they were deeply dissatisfied and unhappy with work. Some of them actually were putting in long hours and more hours feeling like as long as I, maybe what I need to do is work harder and longer and and that'll make me happy. And of course that led to this a downward cycle uh, uh, for them. And that really prompted me, okay, I've got to do something. And that probably was the biggest influence in my taking on this project. And you begin the book by saying that work has changed in America. So without going so deep and covering all the ground that you cover, give us a broad brush of how you see that change. Well, I think we all know it, right? Um, it's been out there. Uh, it's been covered quite a bit. Um, there's a lot more contract work, right? So even though we have a very low unemployment rate, a lot of us have very uh, precarious employment. Uh, we might drive an Uber, you know, a couple hours a week. That counts as being employed. Uh, we might be a dog walker. Uh, we might have any kind of function that is really precarious and is or is contract work, right? Mm-hmm. So our employer does not have great loyalty to us. They're taking us on to do a particular task, and then they're letting us go. So that whole idea of loyalty to workers and maintaining a workforce over a period of time, um, of course, is less and less. It's not gone, but it's less and less. Right. And to find those companies where the employee is really the focus has changed so dramatically. I remember in the 80s, we had, you know, Neutron Jack Welch at at, at GE, who was lauded for like, he basically fires a bunch of people, lets the buildings keep standing. And he was seen as some great, awesome leader. By the way, I never bought that, and all of GE's troubles trace back to him. But that said, when you see the happy person at work, you mention control. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think that's huge. I think that even people I know who work a ton, and I would put myself in that camp, sort of like you, where it's like I've got a nice, solid gig with CBS News, but on the side I get to do a lot of stuff. But I do find myself working quite a bit. But I don't feel out of control. I feel like I control my own destiny. Why is that so important? 
Control is important to many people in terms of work. The thing that people seek most in their job as opposed to work, which are different things, um, is stability. And mm. people underestimate the importance of stability. A lot of employers, a lot of academics, actually, who write about this and talk about this, don't talk a lot about stability in work because a lot of what is said is people want challenge and variety and novelty in their work. Well, some people do, and in fact, a lot of academics and a lot of hotshots do, but most of us seek stability in our work, and that is what I think a lot of people feel is 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 kind of slipping away and is making us feel really precarious. Um, there's, there's a word called the precariat that was coined by an academic in England, and many of us now feel like we can be easily traded out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're somewhat disposable, mm. um, and that makes people feel, you know, very insecure and very nervous, and also doesn't put them in a position to negotiate better terms of their employment the way you've been able to do, okay? And you um, as well, right? Uh, so to that some you're degree, right. uh, yes, but the vast majority of Americans cannot do that. They don't have the leverage to negotiate. So even though we have a startlingly low unemployment rate, economists would predict that there'd be wage growth, very rapid wage growth, because there's apparently a scarcity of employees. But in fact, wage growth has been very, very sluggish. People do not feel that they have uh, that leverage to negotiate for their for their jobs. And so when you're talking about the uncertainty of work, when people are feeling that, not only do they have like a nervous system reaction, but there's no way they can be good at what they're doing because they're always on edge and they're always anxious. And I see that all the time. And we hear from those people, people who say to me, I have this job offer. It is for more money, but I really like where I am. Am I a loser? for not taking that job. Right. And my answer is, you know, happiness does count. Right. I think that that uncertainty is really fascinating. You're right. People don't ask for raises. And also maybe it's why there are some people who would rather opt out than subject yourself to this horrible anxiety where you're not even making that much money and no one cares about you. Right. Technology has also complicated this quite a bit. You know, at the low end of the wage scale, we have things like scheduling software where they can schedule you pretty much down to the hours. You can show up for work, work an hour and be told to go home. You can't plan your budget week to week. You have absolutely no way to plan for the assault to your mm-hmm. sensibility, right? So you're you're just always on high alert. Right. And this is exhausting, Absolutely. by the way. And you're right about it, how it undermines your ability to do a good job. And by the way, if you can't do a good job, employers think, uh, will often think, well, folks are lazy or they're incompetent or, or whatever. That's actually often not the case. If they're feeling very anxious and they can't do a good job, this makes people miserable. People like mastery uh, by our nature. We like to do a good job. You know, we don't we don't want to screw up. But if you are constantly kind of wondering what's going to happen next, it does occupy your mind. It makes you quite anxious and it makes you very risk averse. So this whole notion of of innovation, well, you can't take risks if you're scared your job's going to be gone, if you're afraid that your boss is going to scream at you, if you're if you're worried that you won't be able to leave in time to go to one of your kids' recitals, all these things makes it very, very difficult for you to take risks. Do you feel like there is some uh, difference between when you say a job 
versus a career. And what is this like weird pornography about working till, you know, midnight and, you know, you tell the story of the young investment banker barfing into his <laughs> trash can. I mean, what is that? Yeah, How did that develop? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, you know, there's a long history of that, of course. And, you know, people who have in the 50s, you know, the organization, man, it's a, it's a long history of people overworking. But to, to get back to your to your question about career versus job, I, I mean, I, obviously today that's a pretty artificial distinction. It's really hard to know what constitutes a career versus what constitutes a job. I mean, obviously, so-called careers are elevated in the public mind. The idea that you've got even a vocation, you've got a, a something with a lot of status, you know. And a lot of what we used to think of as just jobs now have fancy titles, and they've been elevated to careers. But again, that's kind of a way to con people into thinking they should work longer hours. They're not being paid hourly, right? Mm-hmm. They're being paid um, salaries not wages, right? And so all that says, okay, now we pretty much own you, you know, night and day, of course, with, uh, you know, cell phone access and internet access 24-7. Today, it would be pretty high status to have a job and actually be able to control your time and say, you know what, it's five o'clock, I'm going home and I'm unplugging. That, I think, would be great if that became high status. You know, the idea that you actually control your time, your employer does not control your time, the idea that you are available 24-7 to employer now actually has high status. I think lots of us have friends who say, you know, I'm too busy. I can't I can't do this. I can't do that with you. I'm busy all the time. And what does that mean? That means that that person is needed by their employer, right? They're essential to, to their job in their mind, right? That's the idea. And that becomes high status. Uh, one of the things I advocate in the book is to rethink that calculation. Is that really high status or is that a kind of slavery? Totally. Right? Exactly. And, right? and like, like the way that you basically compare like piecemeal workers with uh, an adjunct professor, which I loved. And also, by the way, we, we see that in journalism all the time. You know, I'll pay you by the word. Oh, yeah. Or I'll do this yeah. or, you know, yeah. we, you know, there are certain parts of news organizations that are unionized and there are strict rules around that. But all the new technology and all the online outlets, there's no union there. There's no one saying this is insane. We cannot have people here 14 hours. We just can't. I mean, there really has to be a national emergency that we're covering <laughs> to do that. Right. Sure. You know, we get it that if there were an emergency people would respond, Absolutely. but not every day Absolutely. is an emergency. Right. And that's so well put, uh, Jill, that every day now has become an emergency. Everything is in, you know, with exclamation points. It's, it must be done now. The idea that everything is so important, everything is like uh, open heart surgery. Right. When basically oftentimes just to get a product out or get some software done or things like that. And we've been, we actually have been conned into thinking that this is really important stuff. And one of the things I talk about in the book is this so-called, what I call, the passion paradox, Hmm. this idea that we should feel passionate about our work. In the book, I talk about an outtake from the uh, TV show Girls, which is so funny because the heroine of that story, Lena Dunham, plays that role. She had just graduated from college, and she was trying to get a job in New York City, Mm. and she'd applied for a job frosting cupcakes and she was turned down for this job and she went very nicely and she went to the manager of the cupcake store and said why did you turn me down from this job I'm a college graduate I I, I could do this job and he said well you know let me give you a little insight here you didn't feel passionate about frosting cupcakes you didn't show passion about this 
Now, this was a joke, obviously, but it also reflects the reality, a lot of kids in her generation, of how they were feeling. How do you go to a job interview? You have to show passion. You have to show a total investment in the um, goals of your employer. You have to put aside your own goals and invest or at least show that you're investing in the goals of the employer. You have to create this emotional chemistry with your employer to show that you're in with the corporate culture. So you're not just you know, sharing your skills and your talents, which of course is great on the job. All this emotional energy you're putting into your job. So that made me reflect on those letters I'd gotten in response to that little Atlantic mm. essay of those young people saying, I'm so unhappy, I'm so miserable. The reason is, is because, say, one one guy was an accountant, and he's expected to invest his body and his soul in being an accountant. When being an accountant can be very interesting, it can be a you know a well-paid job, it can be you know a great job, but the idea that it should be his whole life and that he should feel feel passionate about it is pretty unrealistic. And then you have that weird thing where people are defining themselves and their passion by their work. And then they have nothing else. And I know many people who leave these high-powered jobs and they are unmoored without the work. It's very strange, actually. You know, I, I know that there are people who have plenty of money and they don't have to work ever again. So I sort of think, well, they're leaving the workforce, so time to do some good or go teach uh, some kids or go be, I don't know, volunteer or have some fun. And then they jump right back into one of those disgusting environments <laughs> that they just complained about for 25, 30 years. Why are they doing that? Again, one of these uh, young people wrote me, the idea that you're doing something for its own sake has really become discredited. Mm. You know, the idea that you're just doing something because you love it, um, you enjoy it, it's not necessarily productive in the sense of what we think of as productive. It's just something that you enjoy and you feel fulfilled by. That's kind of denigrated. But yeah. this whole dissatisfaction with our work lives, this is almost at every level, right? Yes. I mean, there's some weird yes. thing that's like yes. the consistency of this is it's yes. for the young people, yes. it's for the older people, yeah. it's for the rich people, it's for the poorer people, right. and it's for everyone in between. It's the right. hollowed out middle class, and maybe they're not even middle anymore, maybe they're low, but right. it seems consistent. It is. There's a myth that, for example, this I, I didn't know this before I began this project, that, that factory workers are miserable. And in fact, um, when you really look at it, uh, people working in factories were not miserable. And why? You know, it seems to some of us, I think, it would seem like very tedious work. Well, again, they don't go to work for novelty. They don't go to work, you know, to be challenged every day. They go to work for things like kinship. They want to show up at the factory and see their friend Frank and their friend Susan and have lunch and mm. talk about the grandkids and, and kind of be there. They want a place to go and be. They also feel like they're doing something that's constructive. So if you work in a factory, you can actually see, hey, this product actually came out. So, in fact, in the 1950s and 60s, when people were working in factories, job satisfaction was actually higher than it is today. Hmm. People are, are not saying they're dissatisfied with their jobs. Now, they're saying they're not satisfied with their jobs right okay they're not it's not it's not making them happy right it's not that they're um, miserable <laughs> I know this sounds funny but they're just not it's not making them happy whereas in the 50s and 60s and 70s when people were working in factories a lot of people actually found real contentment in their job situation and of course they had 
wages that supported them where they could have a middle class life. You know, maybe they were making in today's dollars 25 or 30 bucks an hour. And they had lives and they had rich lives and families and they had unions protecting them. But all these different fraying of the labor market has left people exposed and kind of on their own. Oh, absolutely. And I talk a lot about that. That So digitalization and globalization, um, which, again, threatens us because one guy I talked to in Kentucky worked in a glass factory, and he hated unions. And I said, gee, you know, he spent his whole life working in a glass factory. He's 49-year-old grandfather, and he had health problems. Mm. And I said, so so why do you hate unions? And he said, because if we get unions here, my this factory's moving to Mexico. There's no way that they'd tolerate unions. So there was no way for them to negotiate a higher salary because if that happened, the company would leave town. So that's been a big change. The digital age capitalism threatens digital age democracy by polarizing employment opportunities, adding a few more jobs at the top and many more jobs at the bottom. I think people would be very shocked to read some of the statistics in this book, specifically that all this growth in and expansion in the job market has actually been, or not all of it, but most of it at the low end. Absolutely. In fact, until about 2000, um, jobs were requiring more and more skills. Since 2000, it's been almost 20 years now, people don't realize this. A lot of I didn't, anyway. Jobs are becoming more and more de-skilled. So we actually have a a small growth in jobs at the very top, you know, jobs that require multiple degrees, you know, very sophisticated, you know, education and background. But the largest growth in jobs are the lowest skill jobs, what we now call the lowest skill jobs. In fact, the fastest growing job category in America right now, in terms of sheer numbers, is uh, home health care aid. Okay, so one of the things I think about, though, as someone you know with elderly parents, is, gee, wouldn't I love it if home health care aides were highly skilled, yeah, and well compensated? And since that is such a huge and growing job category in the United States, maybe we ought to rethink that. We all want excellent care for our loved ones. Okay, there's no question, mm-hmm. and for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we all want that. This should be a very very high priority. But the people who do this work, also can and often do love this work. We get in the way of their loving their work. This is something that they find very meaningful, that they really enjoy. They feel like healers. Mm -hmm. They want to be doing this work, and yet their jobs are very precarious, uncertain. Many of them are contract workers. They're exploited. We could change that. Mm. We could change that by offering certificates. And some of the studies I've read on this, if you offer certificates and training to home health care workers, health care costs go down. Down mm. Because a very well-trained home health care worker can see problems coming down the road and prevent them or alert medical authorities mm. that these things are happening. So actually, this is a money-saving proposition if we work it into things like Medicare and health care costs. Some people I've, I've talked to said, well, look, someone's got to be at the bottom of the you know pecking order and medical. And, I, and I'm saying, well, can't we at least elevate it to a good job? They can do an amazing amount of good. A lot of people move on from health care aid as soon as they can, as soon as they've gotten all that experience, not because they don't love the job, but because it doesn't pay enough and right. it's not stable enough. Okay, they've accumulated, say, 10 years of experience. They're now expert home health care aid people. Can't we incentivize them to stay in the field? It's good for all of us. It's a money-saving, long-term perspective. And again, this whole notion of status around work and what constitutes status. I mean, we really need to think about that. Here will, you know, some 
app designer who's who's designing some app that none of us need or even you know well you're can, married i mean look everyone needs a dating app but i mean <laughs> so no i'm just kidding i feel but, the but, same way but there are, there are good dating apps right yeah, do we right. need more of them no no i mean I that's totally the question agree. you know I totally agree so they're competing with each other for things that already exist rather than creating something new people want to want to innovate something new fantastic but when people are at each other's throats to try and make an incremental improvement or oftentimes just make it seem like there's a slightly improved product we value that so much over the things that we really need. There is tons of work to be done in America, okay? Tons of work and important work, and we just have to make sure it gets done and incentivize people to do it who want to do it. So this is not a prescriptive book, but there are some things that you go into, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit about education sure. because you are representing all of collegiate education right now <laughs> in this moment. Oh, great. And you're in, My colleagues are, know, are so happy about this. I know, especially <laughs> when we find out that since 2000, the wage gap between work Workers with at least a college degree and those with only a high school degree has slowed to a halt. Yes. So yes. is college worth it? Oh, good question. I think college is worth it for a, a certain kind of person. Okay. Mm -hmm. Look, if you're a person who loves ideas and wants to pursue them and just loves the life of the mind and you can get a good scholarship, fantastic. And go for it. Enjoy it. If you're a person who is looking for the kind of career like a dentist that requires, you know, the, the credential of an undergraduate degree and then uh, graduate work, of course. I think that people have to be very careful when they think about college for their children and that the person, and the young person themselves has to think very carefully about what do I want to get out of college college. I see a lot of college students and I teach a lot of students who who they're they're coming in and I'm not sure why they're there. Mm. They're not necessarily interested in the life of the mind. They're they're really not interested in ideas. They think they're going to get credentialed by going right. to college. Right, because I have to do this to get a job. I have to do this to get a job. You know, even going into the next 25 years, only 25% of jobs will require a college degree, okay? That's that's really true. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. Even among those jobs, a lot of them, again, this is a matter of credentialing. You're not actually using your college education in that job. So I'm a huge fan of education. I mean, huge. Obviously, I work in the industry. I encourage everyone who can afford it and wants to pursue it or can get help to do it. I think we as a nation need to help everyone who can't afford it to do it. But it is not for everyone. Advanced education is not for everyone. They don't enjoy it. They don't benefit by it. It's incredibly costly. So people need other alternatives, and they need to be encouraged. So one of the things that I'm thinking about is offering people opportunities on the basis of their skills rather than the credentials. You know, if you have a, a, a BA from some university, you majored in, you know, something that is, is totally unrelated to the job at hand, mm. why should that advantage you over someone who, say, has an excellent high school record and has actually worked summers? Okay, it's it's really unclear that that should really be an advantage. Some people say, well, look, you've had four more years. You're four years older. You, you've gone through the school. You know, you've had all these experiences. Yeah, but it doesn't really necessarily relate to the job. Or the real world. Or the real world. Right, because you've had a great experience. It's like, well, how do I buy a keg and get it up this flight of steps? <laughs> I don't know. Let me think about that. That So that's well, a different experience, that, that, right? You know, that could be a good life skill. Could but, be. Um, you know, but it's interesting. Yeah. You found mm -hmm. some big companies that would complain about skills gap oh, right yes. like so i yes. don't i can't yes. find the people who have yes. the skills but they yes. then went to community yes. colleges yes. and yes. kind of partnered and said would yes. you be willing yes. 
to teach this so we can hire people from here. Yeah. And it worked, right? Well, okay, so I find that very problematic. Why? Because what's happening is these community colleges, on, you know, basically they're publicly supported mm-hmm. community colleges, are doing job training for specific industries. Mm-hmm. And these industries, first of all, do not promise that they're going to employ all the people who go through these programs. Right. They usually employ very few of them, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. They claim there's a big gap, but there really isn't. Mm. So they'll pick and choose among those folks. They'll take the best that they can find. And mm-hmm. oftentimes those those jobs only last for a few years, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'd let these folks go because these people have trained in a specific area which becomes outdated. And this includes things like computer programming languages. So instead of saying, hey, you're learning another one, they say, no, 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 we'll hire someone else who just came out of community college who just learned this language. So I think that's that's very problematic. I'm, a, again, big fan of community colleges, but not necessarily for community colleges partnering with businesses to train people in specific skills related to those businesses. I often say to people, you know, when I give talks, is how do rich people teach their kids? Mm-hmm. How do rich people teach their kids? Do they send them to coding, coding schools? Or do they send them to um, really good liberal arts institutions? So when they come out of these institutions, whether it's a high school or a college experience, they have the intellectual flexibility and the savvy to train themselves. Most of what we do on the job, we learn on the job, right? You didn't go to podcasting school. <laughs> um, I, my guess is you also didn't even go to journalism school. I did not. Right? You, what did you major in? I majored in... Oh, you're going to like this. International relations. I double majored in international relations and English. There you go. What it's done, it has informed you. Yeah. Okay, you don't even maybe even realize it. You're a wide-ranging, curious, intellectually flexible human being, so you're prepared. You're the best prepared to work in an uncertain environment, right? We don't know what's going to happen, and so the idea that we're training people up in specific skills, and this is why rich people don't do this with their own kids, mm. okay? They don't. They don't if they have a a kid who can handle academics, they're perfectly happy to have the kid major in English or French or international studies Mm -hmm. because they know the kid's going to learn on the job. Uh, Before I let you go, I'm also very interested in this Finnish example. So let's finish with the Finnish. (laughs) The Finnish Uh, line. And tell us a little bit about what you learned about Finland. Yeah, so Finland, a lot of us, you know, we think about Finland because, you know, Finland, you know, famously has, you know, their kids do the best on these academic tests. They, you know, they perform really well. Um, but Finland has a lot of other things I thought I'd come, go over to look at. And the reason I went there was because Finland was doing a self-study on work. It's amazing. The government sponsored a nationwide study on work. The reason they did was a lot of office workers in Finland were unhappy and they wanted to know why. Hmm. So I went over and talked to the folks doing the study, interviewed, you know, all these people, hung out at various workplaces. It was really fascinating, really fun. What I learned about Finland is all sorts of things. One of them is that Finns are lifeline learners in the sense that they're very humble. They don't say we know it. They say, let's look, let's talk, let's think. So they're addressing these changes in work with a lot more um, introspection than we are. They're thinking about, gee, people aren't happy. Why is that? Mm. And they're, look, they're breaking it apart. They're breaking the problem apart. One of the uh, incidents, I, I, one of the little anecdotes I tell in the book is one of the f- places uh, that under study was a sausage factory in northern Finland. Now, this seems really weird. It's called Snellman. It's a manufacturer of sausages and cured meats. And it seems really weird that 
so many people working there were so happy there. And as as opposed to a lot of the office workers in Helsinki, and they were trying to figure what's the difference. So they went there and they talked to folks. And one of the folks they talked to actually had a degree in philosophy. He was a graduate in philosophy from one of the universities in Finland, and he was so happy with his job, literally making sausage. He was not working in marketing. He did not have a fancy job. Mm. He was one of the sausage makers. So speaking to him, why was he so happy? So he said, "Well, look." First of all, we make really good sausage. This is something that makes people happy, and I'm really proud of the product that we make. Okay, so that's good. I'm not fooling anybody. I feel very authentic. The other thing he said is, in this company, you know, we have to go home at five o'clock. They make sure that we leave so we have time with our families. We have things here. We have a gym here, and I work out, but I work out on company time. There's also classes in law. There are classes in foreign languages. I take them on company time. Okay, uh, they don't want to keep me here after five o'clock. Right, because a lot of the benefits that we see in the U.S. are really just ridiculous. It's a ruse to get you to be at work constantly. So, Absolutely. like, we're going to feed you, and you can do your laundry, and you got a gym, and like, just stay here till twelve o'clock. Absolutely. In fact, I talked to a designer, an office designer, who told me what has changed in in recent decades is now they have to put a kitchen on every floor of office buildings to keep people at the office. Twenty four seven, they have to have coffee within arm's reach. That's not literally true, but very close by. So caffeine and sugar and all those things to keep people in place in office. This office designer told me this. This is the new way of designing offices, especially for high end, well paid occupations. But when you look at that Finnish model, right, yeah, and yeah. you say it's so cool they're doing this, is there ever any chance that you see that possibly spilling over into the U.S.? In other words. Are we starting to see some sort of backlash yes. against this? Yes, we culture. are definitely seeing backlash against this. Um, there's no question. Uh, people I spoke with, for example, at Harvard Business School, were saying their students were getting really fed up with this. Um, and these are the managers of the future. Mm. Um, yes, it's gone. It's gone. It's kind of over the top. You know what's been happening in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and Mark Zuckerberg and concern about Facebook. So there's a lot of disillusionment about this kind of work model that's not working, uh, the ugly, you know, sort of dark underside now of this has become exposed. One of the examples I use in the book is a company called Quick Trip, Mm. which is um, actually a great little company based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's the largest privately owned company in Tulsa Hmm. and and Oklahoma. And it is a convenience store chain. And it sounds like, why would anyone want to work at a convenience store chain? Mm -hmm. I interviewed the people who worked at these, not all of them, they have, I don't know how many uh, probably over a hundred convenience stores, probably a good number more than that, across the, the South, especially and across the country. So I also talked to the CEO of the company, and what he said is, I couldn't go to sleep at night if I didn't think my employees were happy. Mm. And this is what I do: I cross train them and everything um, that we have to offer, so people can can handle anything, make their own decisions. I empower them, depending on where this this convenience store is. To, to bring in certain products and get rid of other products, depending on what the people in that community want and demand. And he also pays them very, very well, very well, extraordinarily well, way, way above the national averages. And he keeps them. So his his turnover rate at convenience stores are usually over 100% a year. Right. His are down to 10%. Wow. A tiny, so he doesn't have to retrain right. these folks. And so he's very profitable. So he's what, what I call, you know, part of the good job solution. Mm-hmm. It's not a fancy 
place. By the way, many of his employees are college graduates, but they don't have to be. He doesn't select for that. He selects for someone who he kind of wants to make a difference in his customers' lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's something he's looking for. Do right for. by the customers. Do right by the customers. And the people I interviewed who worked at these were extraordinarily happy. I end the book by talking about innovating around work is probably the most important innovation of all. Mm. In innovating new ways of working, new ways of thinking about working. There's a ton of that innovation going on. This is all very new. You know, what's happened is, is I think, a sp- surprised a lot of people. When I began this book five or six years ago, economists didn't think these changes were coming. Now they all do. Right. Think. So it's extremely new, and we're, we're just experimenting with all different things. And I, I think it's really an exciting time. So you didn't finish this book feeling pessimistic. That's Not the, at all. There is some optimism, no. and I love the idea about cooperatives no. and different oh, yeah. pieces here. Yeah. So it's really a great book, and I thank you so much. The book is called The Job, Work and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. Ellen Ruppel, <laughs> Shell, thank you for joining us. And Mark's going to kill me if I don't ask you a final question. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. What is the worst career decision you have ever made? <laughs> um, okay. The worst career decision I ever made was walking into the career services office at Boston University and helping myself to coffee without asking the office manager. Whoa. Yes. That, that ended up in my, my file, and I got reprimanded. <laughs> That does not seem so bad. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks to our guest, Ellen Rupel-Shell. Go out and get that book, The Job. Remember, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. You can access the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever you want to find it. If you'd like to get on the air with us, just shoot us a note. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. And if you want to buy the book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, hop onto the website, JillOnMoney.com, click on the link, The Book, and there you can buy it from your favorite bookseller. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the expecting father and fabulous executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13. See you next week.